0: Is up everybody? My name is James D. Fiori and this is Blackballed. My guest tonight uh, was going to be on the show last night and we were both having <laughs> this is going to sound like a sad story. We were both having kind of bad days so uh, like when just before we, we were gonna go on air, we were like ah, let's just move it to tomorrow but then we had a good talk not on air for five minutes or so and uh, I remember the original reason why I wanted to have him on um, and One of those reasons is because it has been an industry that has kept people like me out. And I am wondering the things that people do in order to um, enter that industry and stay there. And I'm not saying that they're doing anything wrong. I just want to know the formula because I couldn't even crack the code to get into like the foyer most of the time. But our guest today is the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer. His name is Max Fawcett. Max, what's up, buddy?
1: James thanks for having me on that was an amazing intro I really really enjoyed it
0: I made it all up off the top of my head I'm glad it worked out um it usually works out but um yeah we we, yesterday we met uh I've never met you before I've seen you on you were on Dean's show twice once or twice or something I I watched it um and when I decided I was gonna this is what I like to do (laughs) if if I think that a journalist is known as a conservative journalist or a progressive journalist fair or not I will search their name in in Twitter with the usual suspects that end up scrapping people on Twitter from the other side of the spectrum. And I didn't think I would nail it with you, but like, like there was all these like things that I didn't know about that came out. Um, Jonathan Kay, I think he's, he's calling you out um, because you, you dared write something that I think a lot of people were thinking at the time and not even necessarily for ideological reasons. Um, that the that it had a potential, the convoy protest to be a January 6 moment for Canada. Pretty reasonable. Jonathan Kay, being a guest of mine many times, I like Jonathan. Um, one thing I like about Jonathan is how snarky he is on Twitter. He's really good at it. Um, but I look at this tweet. You said columnist Max, or can your your publication said columnist Max Fawcett wonders if the anti-vaxxer truck convoy and fraud will be Canada's own January 6 moment. And Jonathan's like, yes, and he points down, so much thisness. <laughs> I, I just laugh at the, at the verbiage he uses. Um, Thanks for calling out the insidious forces expressing opinions in a grassroots manner. Yeah, yeah. I thought that you guys were talking past each other and stuff like this, but what I really want to know is, does it ever feel like you are wearing, like, team colors and there is an enemy out there wearing enemy colors? Um... And why is it like that in journalism now? I know it's a broad question, but
1: I mean, it does. And you know, I think in some respects, it's kind of always been this way. i'm I'm sitting in my my late father's office, uh, I'm in Toronto right now to sort of do do the unpleasant business of of helping wrap up a very big life that he had. and And my member, one of the things he told me growing up is that intellectual life, you know, being a writer, which I something I always wanted to be, is gang warfare and you need to find your gang and you need to take care of them and you need to uh you know look for the other side and he he came at this from like being a you know a marxist leninist in the 60s and being a poet and poetry is actually i know it's hard to believe but it's actually a very like vicious um sort of intramural thing and so i guess i've always sort of approached my my punditry and my columns from that perspective that you know, there are sides and you do need to sort of watch out for the other side. On the other hand, I I do find that, you know, I will occasionally do heresy because I don't like the idea of of being predictable. I don't like the idea that people can expect a take just on what the issue is. And so, you know, like, and this is full credit to the observer for letting me do this, I'll poke at some of their more sort of, left-wing environmental columnists uh, will disagree about how to tackle climate change. will disagree about a whole bunch of things because I I think if you become predictable as a writer and you become uh, boring, you, you cease to have value uh, as an intellectual product. So, you know, yeah, there are sides. Yeah. You know, John Kay and I are generally on the opposite side of things from each other, but Mm. I'm not opposed to agreeing with him uh if if he if he stops being a jackass and actually says something correct you know then i'll agree with them uh it's not personal right uh but you know and we were talking about this off the air the other day that you know it's sort of like the saddest uh you know uh battle rap in the world you know journalists tweeting at each other and doing this kind of stuff but uh, you know i think it's as long as it stays within certain parameters, certain boundaries doesn't get personal, it doesn't get nasty and all the rest of it. I, I think there's a certain sport to it. Um, imagine and I think that's the, why
0: imagine the intros to the battle rapper journalist representing Greentown. Yeah. town. Uh, he's a ultimate Frisbee aficionado. Jonathan <laughs> K. Like it's just total battle rapper persona. Um, totally. the, the reason why one of the main reasons why I asked that is that I, I, like 12 years ago, I, I, I was noticing the sort of, um, and everything has like a buzzword search engine optimization rebuttal thing in everyone's brain when they hear it. So, um, don't take it like that, this list, but this list will include things like 12 years ago, I was talking about political correctness, but not like in a way that was like, fuck oh, there's political correctness. It just was there. I, and I noticed it and I wasn't politically correct. And I thought I was a progressive at the time. And I realized uh, that I don't want to put myself in any boxes because, um, I think most of us are this person in the middle that if the more aware we are sometimes that will lead us to one side or the other but the ones that are just going through their lives raising kids and haven't and working we don't seem to be ideological because we're like oh, i don't know maybe the other team has good ideas sometimes right um is is the way that the media is set up to make a profit how hard is it to like not be that be that way because your audience wants to see the things that they believe in. Most of the time, I can't think of very many publications in Canada that have like, not an Ezra Levant right wing, but like, you know, uh, from like mid right to mid left, I I, I don't see it. Uh, you know, you get these, uh, token articles in the national post that sort of come at it from the left or these token articles in the star that come out of from the right. But is that a good thing or a bad thing for the landscape? I guess my question is
1: it's terrible. It's awful. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think it's it explains why there is so much polarization these days. It explains why, you know, our politics seem to be getting uglier and uglier and, and why we don't seem to be able to disagree with people without sort of hating them. Um, it's, you know, the media ecosystem and, and look, it's fed by social media. It's fed by the algorithms at Facebook and Twitter and everything else. It encourages noisy disagreement. It does not reward um sort of nuanced takes and sort of giving credit where credit is due. I, I do think that, and this is sort of more of a political take than a journalism take, but I think there would be a lot of appetite for a politician who was willing to give credit to their opponents when they did something right. And I don't think we have any of those in, in Canada right now where they, you know, where they said, you know, or Rachel, let's take Rachel Notley as an example in Alberta. If she came along and said, you know, I don't, I don't like a lot of what Jason Kenney says, but Hey, on point X, He's absolutely correct, right? And vice versa. Mm-hmm. He did the same thing, and I, I think they would get a lot of rope, a lot of mileage from not just their voters, but from from everyone, if they were more willing to show grace and humility uh, when it comes to their opponents. And I, I I think to some extent the same is true with the media. But there's no question that the things that tend to do the best on the algorithms are the things that make people the angriest, the things that poke the part of our br- the reptile part of our brain that that is fight or flight, right? It, it, the the stuff that is sort of calm and well-argued, like it just doesn't tend to, to blow up, right? It
0: has to be a big risk. Um, I always thought, and I could be totally wrong about this, but I imagined it and uh, my imagination seems pretty sound, so I'll just go with it. Um, where Andrew Shear was in the airport during the election when the blackface photos came out. And he did sort of a typical, it was kind of not really noteworthy, Stuff about, like, well, I think the Prime Minister has a lot to answer for. Da, da, da. It was just boilerplate stuff. And I thought he missed an opportunity. What I thought he should have done is said, look, we've all seen the pictures. They're controversial. Obviously, we don't condone it. But maybe we should stop and think for a second. Uh, just because we don't condone it doesn't mean that we have to cancel Justin Trudeau or demand his resignation. He made a mistake a long time ago. Um, we don't think that people should be punished for mistakes. They made so many years ago. He should address it and apologize and let's move on. I thought that would have been super powerful Uh and a lot of political consultants that, that I know at least via social media contacted me because they heard me say that on this other show. And that was, and they were like, yeah, that would never happen. He wouldn't be allowed to say that. And I'm like, well, isn't that the problem? And she's like, well, the math would come out. She literally said the math would come out and it would be too risky. So they're making their decisions on how to communicate with us based on the least risky venture and completely not being able to find a way to exploit their good decisions. Um I don't know what my question is. I just wanted to tell you that story. But but oh, that but, like but, you know, that idea of like um only speaking to one side, that's an advertising thing then, right? It must be. Yeah, it's it's
1: you know, I think in some respects you can almost trace it back to the Obama campaign, which is weird because the Obama campaign is, is, I think, very widely known as being this sort of authentic, um, organic movement. And and it was, but that the Obama team brought a level of sophistication and data to politics that didn't really exist before. And I think in many respects, that's a great thing. It, it helps improve decision making. It, it makes their political uh, strategies better, but it also makes politicians cowards um, because the data is going to tend to want to push you away from taking a big swing. Right. And you're right. Like it would have been very risky for Andrew Shear to come out and sort of show grace and say, you know what? Like we've all made mistakes. As long as he apologizes for it and he does, and he's learned and moved on. I think we should focus on more important things like X, Y, Z. Yeah. Uh, I think he, you could have had this whole news cycle about, you know, what an interesting guy this Andrew Shear is. You know, maybe he's a new mm-hmm. kind of politician. I don't know. But the problem is until someone does it, we don't have data for it and no one's going to do it. Right. It's sort of a yeah. chicken and egg thing. Um, and I would I would love to see someone try. You know, the, the problem is the people who try are the ones who don't really matter. I hate to say that. But like, <laughs> you know, third party candidates, you know, the Green Party, whatever, like they do act this way sometimes. But we don't notice because we're not watching. But if if one of the major candidates, you know, Poyleev or Trudeau or Doug Ford or, um, you know, and I think to some extent, this explains Ford's, the reason why Ford is more popular than most conservatives in this country, because he does do this sometimes, very rarely, and certainly not now in the campaign, Mm -hmm. but he has a kind of aw shucksness to him that is different. You know, like he's willing to say that he likes Christian Freeland and he worked with her. He's willing to say, he's willing to appear at a press conference with Trudeau and say, hey, we're working together on this electric car thing. And I think to a lot of Canadians, in you know, a lot of Ontarians, they look at that and they go, you know, that guy's not bad. You know, like maybe I'm not a conservative, but I kind of I kind of like him. I kind of trust him. He kind of reminds me of someone I know. Sure, I'll, I'll vote for him. And and I think there's a lesson to be learned there that other conservative politicians are not learning.
0: No, I would I would totally agree. Um, Paulie, it was an interesting thing. You wrote something Um, why Canadian I, I'm sorry, I'm going I'm going for it. By memory so I'm, I'm paraphrasing but why canadians shouldn't fall for pierre probably sales pitch or something like that yeah and um 100 i i thought it was exactly right he's so <clears throat> interesting to me because if you're part of harper's cabinet you were at the time you were trying your best to like muzzle the exact same people that he's courting right now um which leaves to me, and I think you mentioned your piece, just sort of like an inauthenticity. I think you compared him to an infomercial host or something like that, and I would totally agree. Um, when and plus he's trying to look all serious these days, like this is a like, come on, you know, we know you're not that. Kind of <laughs> right. Um, for those listening, it's a picture of Millhouse. Um, but
1: in a leather jacket.
0: Yeah, in a leather jacket. That's right. Um, but the thing is, is that the conservatives who are known for, in my opinion, um, courting the batshit wing of their party during the leadership race, and then basically abandoning them um, during the election as they move to the center because they don't want to alienate centrists and, and progressives. I don't think he's going to do that this time. I think he's all in. I, yep. I think that he's going to be the first conservative leader in a very long time to just be like, I'm just going to talk to the same people. It worked for Trump. Let's just see what happens. What if it works? Uh, what are the policies that are going to come out? Because if he's not authentic, wouldn't that sort of speak to this idea that maybe his uh, policies would be more moderate? Is there a silver lining there?
1: I mean, it's funny, like, you know, it, definitely the way their campaign is positioning him is that is he's sort of the true conservative. He's not going to compromise. He's not going to do what O'Toole did and, and you know, the other ones did where they, uh, they moderate uh, after they've won the leadership. And like, the funny thing is he's actually fairly moderate in a lot of respects. Like, I know he's pro-choice. He will never admit it but I know he's pro choice. Um, you know, I suspect he's, you know, like I wrote this column about the the great replacement theory and and how he was sort of willing to, to give uh, his support to the convoy and the convoy was led by Pat King and Pat King believes all this terrible racist stuff. I don't think Polly is racist at all. I mean, I, I you, you know, look at his family like I, he, he's not, um, but he's willing to he's willing to walk with these people and be near these people. And portray himself as this sort of uncompromising conservative because I think he knows that that's what they want now he is like you said you mentioned marketing earlier I think he is very attuned to what his target market wants out of a leader this time and he's gonna give it to them now is is that gonna work in a general election I know my liberal friends and my progressive friends comfort themselves by saying well this won't work in a general I don't know. Look, it's been it's been 10 years. It'll have been 10 years with the same government in power that that is the point where weird things start to happen.
0: And if like voter turnout increasing for certain segments, too, like they're yeah, going to be all out, right? Like,
1: and, and I just think like if inflation is still I, I don't think it will be. But if inflation is still running, you know, five to six percent, um, you know, it, it, anything could happen. And so yeah. to to discount him now or to sort of say, ah, he won't be that bad or he's not a real threat. He is a real threat. He's a very real threat and i think the thing that worries me about him is that when he gets into power if he gets into power not when i'm not that fatalistic but he will he will not play the long game the way harper did he will go straight for the throat uh you know yeah, harper he will,
0: was really patient right like uh, you gotta like, hand it to him he like worshiped at the altar of incrementalism oh, <laughs> you know what i mean so, like it,
1: it was i mean it was you you know I, I i hear a lot of progressives you know sort of saying oh he was he was a bad politician. No, he was a very good politician. He was good at his job. He knew exactly how far he could go, and he didn't go one step further. Um, I don't think Bolleev is going to show that sort of um, discipline. I think he'll go go full speed right out of the gate. And there's a lot of things that he can do, having watched Donald Trump bust norms, you know, kind of uh, put his finger up against against sort of con- conventional wisdom. And I think not that he's going to be a Trumpist you know, in exactly the same way, but he will do Trumpist things here to our institutions. You know, you look at the Supreme Court, uh, which is mostly apolitical at this point. Most people don't even know who's on the Supreme Court. I suspect he would try to change that. Um, and that's all just very, it's very dangerous. So I think my message to to people who are watching him is take him seriously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I 100% agree. I, I think that um, we're just in that, you know, we're in that Twilight Zone era where a rodeo clown was just president of the, of the United States. And it's like, you know, yep. Pierre probably, was very normal next to Donald Trump in a lot of ways. Um, but there's something to be said, like I interviewed Max Bernier and I, I tried to explain to him that, you know, I, I have a I, I don't go all like all out on the Max Bernier is racist thing. And, and I, and I certainly don't rest all my laurels on his immigration policy, but I, I cause I find it interesting that, um, there's only one reason why you would ever cut immigration and that's racism. And I just don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, But I did tell him, I'm like, you do have the unfortunate task of juggling the fact that um, your policy might not be racist, but racists love your policy the best, (laughs) (laughs) right? And how do you juggle? And it's only because it's the lowest, like, you know, it's just, you know, but, um, it's interesting because what do you, do you not, do you publicly say, I'm not even pursuing the votes of the people that have questionable ethics and morals, or do you quietly hope to get them, but will never enact the policies. Like it, it's really a gray area when it comes to ethics, when it, when you're courting voters of any kind, you know, cause but this is, this yeah, is ahead. sort
1: of the, it's the eternal conservative dilemma right now is do they, do they cut off the 5% of their base that is pretty openly racist, sexist you know, don't believe in climate change, all nine yards to go after 10% that is towards the middle? Or do they focus on winning back that 5% that is now bleeding off to the PPC and other uh, far right parties? And I mean, as a centrist, my advice to them would be to cut out the cancer and focus on the healthy part of their their political sort of body. But um, it's a very big risk for them to take. And, you know, they saw O'Toole try to do it and fail. And so I think this time around, we're you know if if Polyev wins, he's going to go the other way. He's he, he's not going to try to be a centrist. I don't think.
0: No, I, I think I would agree. I think he thinks the longevity, and a lot of politicians feel this way, <clears throat> the longevity is in that you know ultra Christian. Um, to be honest, I, I don't know what they believe. Like like it feels like there's a really the. the you said it It, it, we're living in strange times the the odd thing about the convoy is that and the odd thing about the people's party for that matter is that i know progressives that are really progressive who voted the ppc last time and i was like why and they're all one issue voters Mm. and they're either free speech which i don't mind because i know it's a left-wing darling issue that started in berkeley and not tennessee or whatever the fuck right it's i don't understand what happened to that whole thing except people hear keywords and they make decisions, but you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that like, I have this idea that, um, that we're going to see an election in the next two, three elections that are just, it's just going to be like the pollsters all got it wrong, but in a big way, like greens have the opposition or something because I don't know how to predict, um, uh, how society is going to adjust itself in the midst of the most fluid time we've ever lived in. And and I don't know where those pieces fall. I'm pontificating a little bit too much here, but it's a. Uh... Hi, I'm Steve Yerko,
1: and I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast for kids, Flashback.
0: I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does.
1: And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.
0: Have you ever thought I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundle, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. I, I wanted to segue to um to, to something. Because you worked actually you worked for I'm not I'm not slamming this, but I think you worked for a liberal MP, was it?
1: Yeah, Dennis Mills.
0: Did you ever have to deal with any blowback of like you're a biased guy, like you know, you're in the tank? And um how understandable is it that someone might have that idea just about a person, not about you personally?
1: Yeah, I mean, I get it all the time. Um, it's funny, like I get it on both directions. So I get it, you know, you're a liberal. Progressive NDP shill. You, you know you work for the NDP government in Alberta, and then I get it from the other side saying, "Oh, you're an oil and gas hack. You know you're you're in the tank for the industry. You, you you know you're uh you're bought and sold, and and you don't you don't take climate change seriously." Like, I don't know what to say. To they're kind of opposite sides of the coin, but I would say you know all all journalists, all pundits have a bias. Like the idea that we're these like neutral vessels for the truth just totally misunderstands the way people work and the way their brains operate and and how we are as a species. So we all have bias. I think the, the important thing as a pundit or as a journalist is to disclose your bias, right? Is to tell people where you come from. So I don't hide the fact that I worked for a liberal on Parliament Hill. I don't hide the fact that I worked for the NDP in Alberta. I don't hide the fact that I was the editor of an oil and gas magazine, because those are all things that I did and I'm proud of. Um, I think understanding a journalist's perspective can inform their, their take a little bit. Um, you know, but that, honestly that's the, the least effective way to troll me is to go mm-hmm. into my email and say, Oh, you're, you're biased. Yeah. Cause okay. Yeah. I, sure. would,
0: I would have been like, I'm a writer in Canada. Of course I needed yeah. a job. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, my, my favorite thing is, is when they, they sort of posit that there's like that journalists are on the take and they're, they're getting rich off of their work. And it's like, have you ever met a journalist? Like, they don't, they don't get you rich in look, this country. You ever look
0: closely at their shoes?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like ask your waiter. They're probably a journalist. So, uh, Dude,
0: we were talking off air about that. Like, and I was hoping that we could connect on the fact that I've had millions and millions of the the craziest, stupidest jobs ever. And you're like, oh, restaurant. And then I pretty much made it. Well, no, no. I,
1: <laughs> I, I, I went to a very small town in Northern BC to, to spend a year getting paid very little. Um, and that, that helped sort of accelerate the career a little bit. And I came to Alberta and, you know, Alberta, look, people, people shit on Alberta all the time. But it is it is the land of opportunity. Uh, it, is, it has given me, uh, you know, I've met my my beautiful partner there. Uh, I've done great journalism. I mean, I never expected to be the editor of an oil and gas magazine. Are you kidding me? Um, but it was one of the best experiences of my life because I got to learn, about, learn more about an industry that, as it turns out, is totally central to you know every political conversation in this country for the next 30 years yeah um, and and
0: politics you know, every, is like petro- petroleum products well it's, a, it's it, where you least expect it sometimes right? especially, like, in, El- especially in Alberta your, wasn't your magazine <clears throat> and I don't I get all my information from Alberta oil from Ezra Levant right so <laughs> yeah, of um, course. forgive me but um but was the ma- I I I honestly don't know the answer to this but I don't trust Ezra Levant in fact I was going to say to you He's been attacked by Ezra Levant, which makes him a friend for life. Welcome, Max Fast. <laughs> so like because I he there are certain people that I'm just like, no, I'm writing that person off. That person is never coming at you as a like as a straight shooter or in good faith. Um, was the magazine, though, an attempt like an honest attempt to show an audience that parts of the oil industry were legit concerned about the environment? Is that like were they was that the balancing act that they were trying to achieve? Um, I commend it if that's what they yeah. were trying. Yeah.
1: So it was. It, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background here quickly. And it's funny, my uh, you know, my dad, uh, who was he was not um, thrifty with praise, but you know it, it took a lot to get a to get a mm. your, I'm proud of you out of him. Uh, and he was never prouder of me than when Ezra made that video about me. He just could not stop (laughs) talking, sharing it with his friends. He was like, my boy got a 10 minute video from Ezra Levant. So, uh, you know, uh, I I think he, I think he was with you on the, the sort of, you know, assessment of that, but the, the magazine company that I worked for was owned by an avowedly progressive capitalist in Edmonton. She was, you know, uh, very pro business, very hard-headed, but, um, You know, Alberta is not just conservatives, and and so she took, I think, a bit more of a worldly approach to things. And so, when she wanted me to be the editor of the magazine, I said, "Look, I'm going to bring a different perspective than most oil and gas magazines, which are just like shit on environmentalists, um, yay oil, yay, you know, drill baby drill, and all the rest of it." I wanted to sort of give the readers a bigger picture of what was happening to their world. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to toot my own horn, but in retrospect, like we were way ahead of the curve because we were telling them that you got to get serious about climate change. you got to get serious about, uh, you know, the, the, the role that financial actors are going to play in your business in terms of reducing emissions. Uh, pipelines are not probably not going to happen the way you think they will. You have to take indigenous communities seriously. And, and I pushed back on some of the sacred cows in the business um, that a lot of people didn't think to challenge. And so I, I got a little bit of heat for it and then when the the ndp won um, in may i guess it was may of 2015 i, I think i was writing uh, a, a blog about there was a project that got canceled and ezra of course blamed it on the government and i just said no i just way. said ezra i just i know right and i just said ezra like it's not the government um, it's it's the market it's capitalism this is this is a shift that is happening right now that you either can't or won't see but but the readers need to know that this is not just about, you know, evil socialists or evil liberals. This is about uh, a transition. And and sure enough, you know, the last six years have kind of proven me right on that front. It really isn't about who's in government. It's about what's happening globally. So, um, you know, I'm,
0: yeah, I, yeah, I always, see, I always used to hear Stephen Harper or a member of his cabinet or whoever, um, make that point to defend themselves against the, uh, a lowering cost per barrel or whatever it was. And, um, And then the liberals get in office and and the conservatives tell them that they're the reason that the cost of oil is. So the hypocrisy is so profound in politics. Like if you you actually like follow politics like like you do or like I do, it is and you have a good memory, it it is so blatant. Like sometimes you just like you can't even say anything. You can't write the column anymore because it's like, oh, politics are hypocritical. Yeah. Way to go. Good job. Good scoop, buddy. Like that that was great but um
1: oh, it's my, my favorite just to wrap this up my favorite mm-hmm. point about that is uh you know for years conservatives have have made the national energy program under pierre trudeau sort of their favorite whipping boy you know it killed the industry it destroyed yeah. the the economy it was terrible it was the worst thing that ever happened to anyone and now all they they don't say it like this but the policies that pierre Poilievre, jason kenny are all demanding is literally a national energy program it is pipe pipelines to refineries in the east uh but they're
0: calling it the freedom program
1: yeah the freedom program but like like line for line it is the national energy program's big pieces well they're not calling
0: it the freedom program for real are they i just no 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 but i think you might have given them
1: i think you might have given them an idea uh but you know i I think it's sort of like proof that like if you're in politics long enough everything that you were opposed to you will at some point be supportive of uh and and you know uh like you said it's it's almost not worth a column anymore
0: um i'm gonna shift gears here for a second because i didn't know this until after we just went on air here but um you're sitting in your dad's office my condolences i i know uh i know what it's like to, to for all the aspects and phases of that um i asked you i think before we got on air um i don't know why i asked you i just asked you whether or not like, I, oh, we were talking about something else and I just sort of segued into this and I was like, you know, what is your dad proud of you? And mm. you you didn't give anything away to your credit and said, I think he is. I, and and the reason why I'm saying that is that uh, you're surrounded, you're in your dad's office and you're surrounded by his stuff right now. And um, we're talking about journalism and we're talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, your role and the things you've done. And the fact that he got really excited that Ezra Levant <clears throat> did 10 minutes on you. um. I think my question is like, do you give, is it, is it, is your dad the type of person that gave you the independence to go and do it yourself? Or do you think that your father's example, um, was the, what was the sort of the driving force? I, I, I don't know why I'm asking that. I think, I I think that there's something there though. I don't know.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I resisted it for a long time. Um, you know, the idea that I wanted to be like him or I wanted to do, similar things to him, you know, I I will give credit, equal credit to my mom, because my mom's a lawyer. And I kind of feel like the what I what I do uh, combines her sort of legal brain with his writing book length brain. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he he was a role model in terms of, you know, living your life with integrity and and saying the things that you want to say. And that, you know, that was always one of the things that he valued uh, very, very dearly was no one's going to Tell him what to say, and no one's going to pay him money or give him a job where he can't say what he wants to say. And they, he gave up a lot of opportunities for that. Um, you know, he had a very short-lived column in the Globe and Mail because I think he he interpreted edits from his editors as a constraint on his free speech. But um, you know, uh, like I, I I admired his freedom, and I admired, which is you know, freedom. Uh, but I admired. See, that's I admired, one of those
0: words. That's one of those. Sorry, please go ahead. I, we'll talk about it it after is. you're done. Yeah.
1: No, no, but it's just funny because I'm often yeah. critical of this sort of freedom crowd. But right. I, I admired his autonomy um, and his ability to interact with the world on his terms. And there's no question that there's privilege in that, right? Um, I, 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 you know, it's not something that everyone gets to do. Um, and you know, it's not like my parents supported me, but they, they didn't say you're crazy when i told them what i wanted to be they, they were like yeah okay go for it you know give it a shot
0: that's the exact answer you're supposed to give a kid um my dad when i said i, I think i was 11 or 12 i'm like i think i want to be a writer and he literally rolled he's like just be a, sales, <laughs> just be a salesman <laughs> i was yeah. like oh but it probably made me a good like it gave me a good ride for the Dark Depression days because I would just think of my dad and write really good, amazing poetry. Um He was no. he was
1: secretly like giving you giving you material to work with there.
0: Oh, don't you love those people that they make your life a living hell and then they take credit for the success that manifested? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you someone that wants to stay in this industry, given what we're seeing and and how it's leaning? Like, are you just like, I'm in it till the end? Or do you think there's Do you think they're going to figure it out? Actually, let's ask that. Like where where the quality of news can be profitable? Because it feels like obviously everything is clickbaity now. There's not much investigative journalism happening, you know?
1: I honestly don't think journalism, I don't think it's a viable business anymore because the business of journalism was never really viable. It was the business of advertising that sold it. And... You know newspapers and and radios were radio stations were kind of the, the best way to get advertising in front of people and then facebook and google and social media kind of broke that model i mean i remember when i was the editor of vancouver magazine i went to a sales meeting uh with um you know one of the one of the people we were trying to sell ad space to and i saw them sort of sell and, and they were saying well we, this is how many impressions we think we have based on uh our you know publishers model of whatever and and it was all horseshit like (laughs) there's no way that we sold that many magazines or that many people looked at it and then i talked to a friend of mine who was in digital sales and he explained how how you could buy ads on facebook and i was like oh we're done like if you're an advertiser and you can micro target to an exact demographic that you want to sell your product to rather than putting it in a magazine and like hoping that the right person reads it and having no way to find out if they actually bought it based on your ad like it's over it's ball game so i think i think journalism if it is going to endure, it will endure as a charity. Uh, you know, I think charitable status is going to be increasingly important, and that's a whole other ball of wax. That's so complicated because you can just imagine the rebel wanting to be a charitable or organization, oh and, and all the, all the lawsuits that would create.
0: <laughs> They're the recipient um, of so much charity as it is. Like, well, they
1: are. Yeah, true. What a business
0: model! How, like, benzie stubs his toe, and Ezra's got a fucking foundation in like two days. You know,
1: I think. I think conservatives you know, certainly Donald Trump, but but you know, uh, Ezra and, and all these sort of other right-wing media organizations like that have proven that shamelessness is a very, very valuable business trait, right? If you yeah. can be shameless, uh, you can go a long way. And, and I think that's sort of the advantage that conservatives have in this sort of media landscape is they're good at churning outrage. Outrage works, outrage sells, outrage gets clicks. Balanced, you know, investigative journalism, forget it. Um, no one's willing to pay for that, that, that will have to be funded by foundations, by charities. Uh, It will become, you know, uh, a a public work uh, because it it won't be, there's no way you can support it with, with a business model around it.
0: Aren't the left though. And I'm going to generalize for a second or like, um, you know, the CBCs and Toronto stars of the world, and now magazine maybe you throw in there or used to, um, don't they make it easy for the right sometimes? Like I, I often, like I sit there in bewilderment sometimes and listen to people like, like, I don't understand why people are like against any like woke culture, it's it's the way to go. And while I understand kind of what he means, n- no one wants to be uh, placed on a game board of fear like conservative media does, but no one wants to be fucking lectured all the time either, which yep. is really kind of what the left media does. Yep. And um, you know, the the Tara Henley thing happened last year, whenever that was, where she left the CBC. It was funny because no one had really heard of her. (laughs) That's what I thought was funny about the story. Like, I'm not saying she was a nobody. She probably had a great career. But it was like, you know, this story wasn't her, which is great for her in a sense. It was about how she had to, like, slog through the forest of wokeness. Um, But there's some truth to that. And some people use it, like, like, use their corporate reptilian brain and just adapt. Um, Some people are really uncomfortable for years and years. Um, that has to change a little bit, hasn't it? Don't we need to shake the etch sketch a little bit and, and be like, why are we making such assumptions, grand assumptions on all of these issues without actually saying, you know, what's the science or whatever? You know what I mean? Like you can't even ask the question without being called a phobe of some sort. You know what I mean? Like,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's definitely, there can be an overcorrection. Now I've, you know, I've heard good arguments for the overcorrection. Um, I understand where people are coming from, where they where they pursue the overcorrection. Um, but I do think that you, sort of a cardinal rule of, of politics that I was raised on was, you don't give the enemy free ammunition, right? You don't give them bullets to shoot back at you. And I do think that sometimes progressives and, and progressive media organizations can be guilty of being excessively earnest and being excessively dismissive of the concerns that some people have. So, you know, I I think you take something like the, you know, the great replacement theory, right? Mm. N- nonsense, just nonsense. Um, but underneath, I it, haven't.
0: I don't even know what it is. Like I sort of know what it is. It's like they're they're taking places of white people, or isn't that basically? Society, yeah, just that, that like that
1: like a a global elite is trying to like displace white oh. people through immigration
0: and and Jews will oh, not replace us and those guys, right? Like it's that, yeah. it's that. But if you
1: you know you look at somewhere like Toronto or Vancouver's housing markets, uh, immigration is definitely playing a role in that, right? And mm. so if you're a young person who is looking around and going, well, Jesus, I'm never going to be able to own a home anywhere in the city, forget Toronto, I won't be able to own a home in, in you know, wherever. Um, that's you being, you asking questions about immigration does not make you a racist, right? And yeah. people calling you a racist for asking those questions is just gonna push you further away. And so I think, you know, prog- as a project for progressives, they should at, at all times and wherever possible, try to bring people in, right? Try to understand where they're coming from if possible, and try to bring them back towards them, rather than saying, "You go over here into this corner. You're you're undesirable. You're you know you're a write off as a person." Because mm-hmm. I think when you start writing off forty percent of the population, that that starts to get very very precarious politically. Um, yeah. You know, you look at you look at the NDP in Ontario right now, uh, getting their just their asses handed to them. Why is this happening? Because no one knows what the NDP stands for anymore, right? <laughs> uh, Andrea they, they,
0: That's why it's happening.
1: <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they, you know, they, they can't relate to the working class the way they used to because, in some respects, it feels like they're more interested in telling the working class that their views are incorrect than fighting for their rights and fighting for improving their working their li- living conditions. And so, you know, I, I think progressives kind of have to do a bit of soul searching on that front.
0: Yeah, I always go back to that example before the 2016 election when Van Jones went to some place in middle America, talked to a Republican family who had been voting Republican for generations and said, you know, like, why are you voting the way you're voting this time? And he's like, our factory in this town closed down like 12 years ago. Um, the economy sucks. The unemployment rate is 30%. And our Democratic candidate, not candidate, but Democratic Senator or something like that came uh, to, to do a speech and 80% of it was about pronouns, and we had no idea what he was talking about. Like, we just didn't know what he was talking about. Um, And that's not to diminish, you know, the universe that pronouns lives in, but if you're unemployed and poor, you probably don't wanna talk about that right now. You wanna talk about the economy. Um, And then when you found out that millions of people would have voted for Sanders as their second choice, Trump voters, we don't live in a linear political system in our minds anymore. Like it's not like you're conservative and then I guess you go to liberal and then if you get become more, you're like seeing people that are like, I don't know. I just can't decide between the green and the PPC this year. Yep.
1: Yep. No, I I mean, I'm, I'm one of, you know, one of the best lessons um, my boss that I mentioned uh, Dennis Mills uh, taught me about politics was people in the real world don't, have this sort of organization in their head that you as a political science graduate do you know like you understand systems and you understand parties and historical platforms and all most people understand is what feels good to me what sounds good how can i you know what what excites me um and they don't place things in boxes ideologically they don't go well i can't support that candidate because i'm that i'm not that kind of person uh and you sort of have to meet people where they are and that is you know, I think that's why you're seeing populism succeed right now is because populism brings the right and the left together under this sort of different umbrella. And I, to be clear, I think populism is very dangerous. Uh, it almost always leads to bad places. But the, the, the rise of populism tends to happen when people's concerns are not being addressed. And you know, we, we have allowed income inequality in this country to kind of grow and grow and grow, not as bad as the United States, but still pretty bad. Um, and there are going to be consequences. And I think we are seeing them, uh, and, and progressives need to, you know, like I, I'm with you. The pronouns are important. We gotta, we gotta be, oh, mind- I, 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 I didn't say that.
0: <laughs> I wow. We, say okay. We, we have to, I think, you know, I think I just don't want to be forced to like say words that someone created out of thin air. I, I'll call anybody a he or she, if they want to be known as he or she, the, they and them thing confuses me. So I'll just use their name at that point. But Xur and all these ma- I don't know. I'm just yeah. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Like I feel like this is an avatar game sometimes. You know.
1: And it and it you know it when you're dealing with inflation, when you're dealing with climate change, when you're dealing with you know uh, wage stagnation, all the rest of it, it. It that stuff just doesn't rise to the level of most people's concerns. And yeah. and when politicians, I mean, it's a fundamental thing. It's it is literally the the job description. If you are not hearing and representing people's most important concerns, you are not going to get elected. Uh, and I do think in in a lot of respects, that explains why the, you know, we're in this moment right now where, you know, this should be the NDP's golden moment, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're willing to run deficits, we're big spending, we're doing big government programs, and they're going nowhere. And it's yeah. because I think they, they are out of touch and out of alignment in most places with where people's concerns really are. And the, the NDP governments that are succeeding, you know, BC and Alberta Hopefully it'll be an NDP government again. Uh, don't want to show my cards, but they're not a secret. <laughs> they're they're orange. Just like they're that. orange in Alberta. Uh, in your but, sleeve. I can see it
0: peeking out there.
1: But uh, those are governments that are pragmatic. They yeah. are focused on you know wages and jobs, and and they get they get yelled at by a lot of progressives for it for being you know sellouts for being too centrist. But I got to tell you, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah,
0: yeah the whole. Um, radical wing of the NDP versus the practical wing has always been their Achilles' heels in a lot of ways, but we're also leaderless. Like I, 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 am I'm sure Jagmeet Singh's probably a great guy. He's not a very good leader. Um, I don't find Justin Trudeau a very good leader because all I do when I see him now is I'm like, he's a really bad soap actor. Like I can't, <laughs> I, I just, I am so conditioned to not to, to like cringe when he does his photo ops and his dramatic pauses. I was one of the guys who had no problem as soon as his dad's funeral was over. I was like, no, seriously, what the hell was that? Like, what, what did I just watch? <laughs> was that, was that him? Cause if that was him, then I salute. but the, you know, and maybe it is just him, but he comes off like, I don't know, overly yep. rehearsed. I, I can't figure it out. And anyway, it doesn't resonate with me, but we are leaderless. Like I, and, and so that might be a reason why the NDP is coming through. I'm an NDP voter and I stated this years ago. Um, and it's for one sole reason. I. It's a revolving door between the Conservatives and the Liberals. And I think that the NDP should have a crack at finally having a chance to wreck the family car. They're the only ones that <laughs> haven't done it. Um, it has nothing to do with their policies. I could care less. I'm just tired of giving, like, the revolving doors so much ammo. Well, um, and, and, and yeah.
1: to that point, sorry, uh, uh, to that point, like... You know we look at america and just how awful their politics are it's because they go back and forth between coke and pepsi right um now i definitely have a preference i think i think the democrats are a million times better but i think the the beauty of the canadian system is that you can have a third party win and often you know a third party will decide an election even if they don't win and so yeah let's let's let them drive the family car at some point i think it would would shake things up in a really interesting way
0: i do as well um I'm not going to say enjoy your time because I know why you're there, but like, you know, I, I feel, you know, that, um, I, i just, I I know what it's like. And, um, it's funny how pockets of amazing joy can come out in the next few days for you. So, um, you know, I hope you experience them and, uh, Max Fawcett, thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me on James. Appreciate it. Um,
0: I, I like, uh, I like journalists like Max because, um, he, there's so many journalists that are afraid to say some of the things that he said, which is like, Hey, left. You're you're not perfect. You got to get your act together. Sometimes some things are are a little bit we're a little bit crazy. Um, it's valuable opinion to have, and uh, and I'm I thank him for coming on the show. Tomorrow we have Steve Paikin, and uh, he'll be on at six thirty. Uh, on the twenty fourth, we have Lynwood Barkley. I'm really excited about that because he's a writer who's sold millions of books. He's one of Canada's most popular writers right now. And I also just want to make just a quick announcement. Um, because a lot of people have been messaging me. Uh recently um I I I left the Dean Blundell show is a totally amicable thing. Um it was just the right time Blackbold's doing well. Um and and yeah, but all I really want to say about that is that um I was on the show for almost 2 years or about 2 years and I can't thank Dean enough. Um the you know the chance that he took on me uh to to like, you know, be a, on a show that big with basically zero broadcasting experience um you know i'll never forget that it, it it gave me a whole bunch of stuff that i don't need to get into so yeah so dean thank you so much um and you know thanks chris lachlan ryan uh you guys are going to continue to be dope and it's going to be a killer show so thanks again everybody and uh i hope you had a good time we'll see you tomorrow for steve Pickin, and that's it thanks blackmore black black Black. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and
1: I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vail. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world.